to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. There's evidence to suggest that trauma runs in families. The things your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents survived might affect you in some surprising ways. And understanding how trauma might be passed down could help you better understand yourself, as well as help you heal from the intergenerational trauma and stop the cycle. Today, I'm talking to holistic psychologist Marielle Bouquet. She's a therapist and an expert in intergenerational trauma, She's also an ambassador to the health and wellness company, Ollie. In today's episode, Dr. Bouquet explains what intergenerational trauma is, the five things that can happen when you experience it, and the steps you can take to stop the cycle. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down the strategies Dr. Bouquet shares and talk about how you might start applying them to your own life. So here's Dr. Bouquet on how healing from intergenerational trauma can help you grow mentally stronger. Dr. Marielle Bouquet, thank you so much for joining the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I am looking forward to talking about intergenerational trauma. I think it's a misunderstood topic. People aren't quite sure what it is. So maybe you can start by enlightening us a little bit. What really constitutes intergenerational trauma? Yeah, and happy to clarify. And, you know, it really is a, a fairly complex topic. So it's complex because it's multi-layered and it's uh, the type of trauma that has elements that are both um, biological and there are also some more psychological elements, uh, which is what adds to the complexity. But um, all in all, intergenerational trauma really is the type of trauma that happens to be passed down through your lineage. It's a trauma that exists in families through multiple generations. And a part of the ways in which it exists is through the transmission of intergenerational trauma markers within a person's uh, genetic makeup. And then also through the ways in which Stress and stress responses are modeled inside of a person's home. And then, uh, of course, you know, the ways in which it produces added vulnerabilities for any one of us um, as we then navigate the world with all of its complexities and all of the possibilities that the world has to further traumatize us. So um, intergenerational trauma is uh, the trauma that I say is at the intersection of nature and nurture meaning that, you know, there, there is a, a component that is a part of just your biology and your constitution as, you know, that happened when you were born. And then there is a piece that, you know, is, is carried through in your home and then as you grow up just in your life. So let's say your grandparents went through something traumatic. We're talking about two different things that happened then. Your genetic code might look a little bit differently because of that, because of the stress that they went through, what happened when your parents were born, but also because maybe they raised your mom or your dad a little bit differently because of what they endured. That's right. Yeah. So um, the ways in which your grandparents internalized their stress response, um, and we're talking about more chronic stress responses, right? So we're talking about 
the possibility that a person's parent, grandparents may have been um, themselves experiencing longstanding trauma or chronic trauma, or at the very least that they experienced a trauma and that they carried that trauma response with them for an extended period of time. So much so that it created uh, a genetic re-expression in their bodies. And in addition to that, they also managed in whatever way they did a way of coping through their stress responses that more likely than not was not the healthiest or helpful, right? Because it, it didn't necessarily get rid of the trauma or the trauma responses or um, help them to, to stabilize, right? And so that um, they would have not only transmuted over those gene expressions to their children, but also those more unhealthy coping mechanisms that they would have embodied would have also been transferred over because they would have modeled that to your parents and, and then your parents would have been internalizing ways to manage stress in a way that wasn't necessarily healthy. So then, you know, the saga continues into the, the next generation, if you may. Why do you think we've been kind of slow to recognize this? We sometimes think, well, if I wasn't traumatized, then I probably don't have any of these symptoms or I don't have any of these issues. We're just starting to realize, gee, it, it tends to be passed down from one generation to the next, but we've been sort of reluctant to embrace that. Well, I mean, there's two main reasons, right? One of the reasons is because um, when you grow up in a home where all that you know is the ways in which trauma was embodied in that home and you basically see that as something that is normal, you, you don't really have additional context to, you know, compare that to, right? And so um, very often people come to a realization that they even are embodying any kind of uh, trauma response whenever they're engaging more so in healing work and thinking back, you know, to the experiences that they've had with their parents and and wondering, wow, you know, I actually was really hurt when I was a child. I do have inner child wounds. There are things that are happening in my life right now that are the ways in which I'm trying to kind of um, be in survival mode or the way that I am in survival mode. And so people start coming into those realizations. And when they do, then, then they start, you know, kind of connecting the dots back, right? But it, it isn't something that you know, once you're an emerging adult, you're like, oh, well, now I know, you know, it was intergenerational trauma. Usually there is a lot of work that needs to be done in order for a person to even arrive at that conclusion. And then there's also, you know, uh, some some ways in which society also normalizes um, trauma within our homes and normalizes relationships with people that um, have caused us pain. Um, and so a lot of that also acts as a deterrent from us actually being, you know, engaging in either any self-dialogue or dialogue with others about the fact that trauma uh, may be present. I'm glad you brought that up because as a therapist, I know, and I'm sure you do too, the family secrets play a huge role that people tend to want to protect their loved ones, their parents, their grandparents. But often in families, things aren't even talked about. I can look back in my own family and it's kind of whispered about that you know that somebody was uh, had a serious substance abuse problem or somebody had a mental illness, there was abuse. But it's kind of whispered about here and there like, well, there was something that went on in your great-grandparents or your grandparents' home but it's never really talked about. Yeah. I mean, the shame is very immobilizing, right? So whenever there is shame in the home, there is a way in which um, there is an automatic silencing. And so I think that 
it happens to be one of the things that's happening that is something that is just very purely psychological, right? Um, you know, we we silence around shame because we don't want to expose uh, whatever shame is going to expose about us or about people that are an extension of us. Um, and so it, it, it makes a lot of sense that that is something that is very human that happens and that is so incredibly common. Um, but what, what tends to happen when family secrets are not exposed and they're, you know, uh, just cast to the shadows is that they're never really allowed an opportunity to be dealt with and to um, allow the individuals within that family to have liberation from the emotional wounds that, that you know, those traumas are causing. And I wonder too about how each generation tends to maybe think, well, I have it a little easier than the generation before me. So I almost feel guilty or I feel like I shouldn't have it rough or claim to have it rough because my parents did a lot better job than their, than my grandparents did. And so therefore, what do I have to complain about? Mm-hmm. That's actually something that's so incredibly common for folks to reflect upon, especially when uh, the experience has been of being uh, from a family where... Um, you don't really see like more like pervasive traumas like neglect and abuse and um, areas that, you know, you could have very easily pointed out as trauma, um, but that the traumas are, is, you know, more subtle um, or the trauma responses, let's say, are more subtle. Um, that people tend to feel the element of guilt. It, it, it's so common. And, and I'm sure that you experience this even, you know, in your own practice that, you know, some people have a lot of, um, they have a tough time even getting to the place where they can actually have a conversation about people that they love and um, the possibility that they could have wounded them. Um, the, they have trouble really sitting with that dichotomy, like sitting with the possibility that a person can hold both love and pain um, in their relationship with you and that they could could have deposited a lot of love into your life and stability and um, all the things that you would have needed, psychological safety even, and that there could have been another side as well um, that could have been actually, um, uh, that could have created moments where all of those things were taken away, including and especially the psychological safety piece. Um, And then there's sometimes, you know, the remorse that people feel, right, that coincides with the guilt about even having that discussion. There's sometimes ways that people, you know, um, withdraw from having the conversations. I know for a fact, you know, in times when I've been dialoguing about um, the ways in which um, trauma has run through my own family that I myself have had to take a deep breath because it is something that, you know, causes a lot of like internal disruption. And, and I think that, you know, it's in those moments where we can actually get through the experience, the internal turmoil that it actually causes us, the guilt especially, um, that I think we can find the greatest liberation and especially the greatest, you know, um, uh, disruption from the intergenerational trauma itself, because intergenerational trauma thrives on us not talking about it. And I think there's this fear of if somebody has passed away, we definitely don't want to say anything bad about them. So whether it's a parent, grandparent, somebody who uh, maybe did something that wasn't the kindest in the past, to be able to say that about them for a lot of people just feels like it's being disloyal or it's too tough to do. Right. And a lot of people also feel like, you know, well, what is the point, right? What's the point of talking about it if the person isn't here to address what, whatever ways they have contributed to trauma being um, a part of my life and a part of the life of my children. Um, 
but quite frankly, um, you know, it, it is very powerful to even speak to the ways in which people who are no longer with us um, have contributed. And quite frankly, more of the layers of intergenerational trauma and what is unearthed and excavated does, does happen in the generations that aren't even with us. So there is a lot of the intergenerational trauma work that is, you know, um, I guess it, it falls within the category of ancestral work, right? It, it falls within the category of like going as far back into the lineage, into stories and, and into um, trauma responses that weren't even present when you were alive, right? Um, it may have been your great grandparents and those individuals had a large contribution to the ways in which you embody trauma today. And it's important to talk about and excavate those points and, and get a sense of what was happening in their lives. How were they contributing the trauma responses forward into your grandparents' lives? And, um, and get a, a full sense, like a clear picture of how did this all come about? All of that is very important, even if those individuals are no longer alive to be able to give their peace or, um, you know, to, to have dialogue with about these things. And you recently posted on Instagram five things that can happen when you experience intergenerational trauma. I'd love to just run through those things so that people can recognize what they might be experiencing. You said number one was that you numb your pain to get through the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a psychological defense that is incredibly common. I mean, when we think about trauma in and of itself, one of the the bigger categories of trauma is numbing, right? It's the avoidance and it's us not being able to actually um, psychologically or even consciously like deal with the actual pain. And so finding ways to to numb, whether consciously or unconsciously, is very common, um, you know, both in when we're in the trauma responses, but even as we're doing the work, because sometimes what comes up is entirely too painful and numbing sometimes even has to be a part of the process. And then you said number two was operate from ego defenses at all times. Can you explain what that one is? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the ego, um, I, I think us that are in the world of psychology, we understand the ego as many things, right? We can understand it from, you know, the, the Freudian, more psychoanalytic perspective. But I think the the ways in which ego has been conceptualized in, in like modern day language and in, in the very like vast, um, world of, you know, media, social media and everywhere where ego is like, you know, um, uh, b- being talked about is as more so a psychological defense, right? It's, it's um, operating from a place where you are a constant, constantly guarding yourself, right? And, and creating a barrier between you and the pain or the possibility of pain. So ego, I conceptualize in that more modern kind of terminology. Um, it's the ways in which we then uh, create whatever creative way we can in our minds to actually safeguard us from the pain that is in front of us. And then number three, you said it feels like it's hard to turn off the chaos. Oh, this is a big one. <laughs> the, the inner chaos and the emotion dysregulation, to use a more like, you know, um, I guess dialectical behavioral therapy uh, type of terminology. Um, but that tends to be something that is um, one of the most, from what I hear from folks, just in in all the ways that I'm connected to people, social media, clients, and otherwise, um, it's one of the most frustrating pieces is that people feel like I can't turn it off. And nighttime comes and it's still, um, my brain is rapid firing and it feels like 
um, there's there's always this ongoing dilemma that is happening inside of my mind that won't shut down even in the moments when I want to be able to experience peace, like when I want to you know um, meditate or when I when I want to rest and sleep. Um, and that that inner chaos is so abundant um, in people that are experiencing intergenerational trauma. And it makes a lot of sense when we're talking about something that is both biological and psychological, right? Because um, the biology of a person that has those emotional predispositions and vulnerabilities is one where, you know, there is a lot of hormonal activation that makes it so that um, feeling at peace can be um, a, a tall ask. And I find a lot of people want to make the outside world match the inside of how they feel. So they tend to create chaos because that's how they feel on the inside. And they don't necessarily know they're doing it. They're not doing it on purpose, but they create a chaotic environment. So then it feels like it's okay to be feeling chaos on the inside because, okay, now I live in a chaotic world. Number four, you said was that they struggle to see an end to their pain and yours. So people just feel like it's this endless cycle of pain, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and the, I think what tends to be most interesting for myself and even for people as they're going through the motions and they're going through their own healing is that when they experience less of the chaos, they run to the chaos, they run back, right? Because that is a point of familiarity. And it's even in that cycle of running back to chaos, running back to relationship types that could create chaos in their lives. Um, and all of the ways in which unconsciously we just remain in the same places because of the sense of familiarity that, um, you know, people tend to be like most astounded. Like, how could I self-sabotage? How could I have done that? You know, when I truly want peace. However, your mind hasn't necessarily oriented itself around how it can actually have sustainable peace. And until you have that, then you won't be able to actually en engage that peaceful state in your life and in a more um, sustained fashion, in a way that it can actually have lasting effects. And the fifth thing you said was that you feel like you're always vulnerable and raw, which is why we talk about so many of these strategies that, that can work for your mental health, yoga, meditation, but they're kind of like you're putting a Band-Aid on a serious wound, right? When you're dealing with intergenerational trauma, these little strategies maybe that work well for a lot of people might just not be enough. Yeah, not at all. You know, I, it reminds me of like in um, dialectical behavioral therapy, there is this one skill called like the plus one rule, right? Where you, you know, if you feel like a level of distress, if, you know, from one to five, it's at a four, then you have to do four things plus one other thing to help bring you into a leveled state or, or, or you know, kind of downregulate those like strong emotions. Um, you know, the, the same tends to go for a lot of these strategies. Um, that we, you know, have conceptualized as self-care, right? Um, doing like this one thing, um, you know, on the weekend with an entire week of chaos is really not going to do very much, right? You have to engage in an ongoing and intentional routine around how you take care of your mind, body, and spirit in order to see some leveling, some sort of a foundational um, effect on your mind, right? And then um, you also need to continue working on the trauma pieces, right? So that's only one piece of the puzzle. But, you know, sometimes, especially in the world that we're existing in, the, the kind of current zeitgeist, if you may, is, you know, if I do these one-off, you know, self-care things, then I could be better. When in reality, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of um, uh, actual practice of 
you know, disengaging from the trauma by way of doing those self-care things plus the trauma-based work. So what do you do? Let's say somebody listening to this realizes, all right, my family dysfunction probably has led to me experiencing some intergenerational trauma. What do I do about it now? Well, you know, the the more important thing to note, um, and I do understand that whenever I say this, I have to be mindful of access, right? Not everyone has access to therapy. Not everyone has access to a therapist that would be trauma-informed, right? Um, and therapy isn't the only place where uh, trauma work, you know, can be done, right? So, I, you know, I'm very mindful of that. However, one might say that I'm biased in being a therapist myself, but I do believe in a trauma-informed therapist at that, but I do believe that uh, a lot of the hardy work around intergenerational trauma and trauma proper has to be done with a trauma-informed therapist. It, it must be done with someone who um, understands the very mechanisms of trauma and the ways to help you navigate through it. Um, and when it comes to intergenerational trauma, a lot of the work that has to be done has to be multi-layered and multi-dimensional because the trauma itself is multi-layered and multi-dimensional. So when we're talking about the biological piece, we're talking also about a nervous system that is either um, in hypo or hyper arousal as its common state. And so what we have to do is do some nervous system regulatory practices that can get at that more biological components of intergenerational trauma, in addition to also doing the work that is more mind-based, in addition to doing also the work that um, is held in the realm of what we call like the spirit realm, which is, you know, the ways in which you connect in relationships to others, to yourself, to to systems, um, to environments, right? And how grounded do you feel? How disconnected and dissociated do you feel? All of those things. So, the work itself can be done um, in a way that is profound and layered in a trauma therapy setting, or at the very least in a setting that is healing centered and, and is trauma informed. So a lot of people are going to say, well, talking about it's not going to help. What would you say to somebody who has that concern? I would wholeheartedly agree. I don't think that talking about it on its own is going to help. Um, it has to be layered in that um, the work has to be body centered because we do have to, you know, also address the ways in which trauma responses are being captured in the body. There's a reason why, you know, body centered work and the body keeps the score and like all of these body practices are really making headway in society. It's because we are beginning to understand now more than ever that the body is a big depository for trauma. So talking about the trauma in and of itself is not going to resolve the trauma, but we do have to talk about it in order to, to also understand like where is it being captured in the body and in other ways, right? There's also some work that needs to be done around intergenerational trauma that is focused on the family, right? Um, and if not... Um, family-based work, meaning that the family themselves are also doing the healing work together um, with, with the individual that's the identified client, right? Then um, at the very least, orienting the client uh, around the ways in which they can engage with their families in a way that doesn't continue the cycle, right? And so um, some of the work also has to be relational. The work has to be um, around bringing a person into 
a place where they're relating to themselves very differently than they ever have before because they've only had one way of relating to themselves, which has been from that trauma response. And so the work is very layered and it does require a lot of work. It is extensive and it may take months to years, right? So I think setting the expectation is always really healthy. Can you explain a little bit about what body-centered work is for somebody who's listening and isn't sure what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a field in in therapy that um, is called somatic therapy, and I think it, you know, especially for us, for us therapists that are um, that orient our, our work around uh, body centered practices, a lot of it has derived both from somatic therapy as you know uh, an approach, but also from especially for any of us who like myself work as a holistic therapist, um, it also comes from any practices that have already been a part of society or indigenous healing that has also um, uh, for centuries proven to us that can these practices can be very effective in reducing or eliminating stress from the body. And so, um, you know, what we know about body-centered practices is that uh, a part of what they do is that they capture wherever it is that the body is capturing emotion. And typically there is something that's happening in the body that um, where there is either tension, there's inflammation, uh, there is um, a sensation that is outside of the norm. And we try to gauge where that sensation is and where it's most prominent and where it's been sustained, meaning like you've had back pain for a number of years, right? Or something like that, um, that, that is a very... Um, that can very well be tied to, you know, capturing stress in the body. And we do practices that release that tension or release the inflammation or release um, any of the sensations that, that cause discomfort. And some of those practices can be something like progressive muscle relaxation, which is tensing the muscles inside of um, all of the muscle groups inside of the body and then releasing them um, to create a, a, a relaxation. It's, it's almost like a forced relaxation process, right? But it is incredibly effective. Um, there's also body awareness that, you know, that we create around um, a person's body so that they can be more in tune with the ways that their body is capturing stress. There's also um, trauma-informed yoga that is also a part of uh, body-centered practices for, for therapists that are trained already in that area, or that can actually offer that as, you know, as an ancillary um, method of support from a trauma-informed pr practitioner. Um, and there are so many others, but really what we're getting at is the different ways in which um, the body can elicit uh, the process of relaxation through any of these mechanisms, meditation, breath work, anything that's body-centered is really welcome. Because the truth is a lot of us don't necessarily recognize when we are in a state of stress, right? Physically, it's hard to recognize when we're releasing all these stress hormones, we walk around sort of in this hyper-aroused state quite often and don't even know how it's affecting us, that your shoulders are tense or your back is sore or uh, maybe you start to cough when you talk about a certain subject. I've seen people with lots of different symptoms of it, but they didn't necessarily recognize that it was directly linked to their mental health until we started having conversations about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And very often that's the case. I mean, um, I, I don't know the numbers at this moment, but I do recall that the numbers were pretty significant, like somewhere in the 70s or so, a number of years ago, that uh, there were about 70% of like, um, of the uh, people that went into their primary care physician for some sort of an ailment were then referred to um, a mental health 
practitioner because a lot of the 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 what the ailments that they came in complaining about had a psychological component. And so the numbers were pretty astounding, right? Like they were pretty up there. And I, I think that's a part of what also has led um, this movement in the mental, well, in the, in the more like primary care field of actually having uh, screening documents that screen for anxiety and depression, because um, we need them in place where the people are going for their care whenever they see that something is up, something's, you know, happening that isn't feeling quite right. Um, and it creates a, a, a more seamless funnel into where they really could get the proper help, which is in mental health care. Yeah, I had a luxury at one point in my career of working in a doctor's office. So the doctor could see the patient and then just walk them down the hall um, to see a therapist. And we realized so quickly how easy that made life that we could then talk about the reason somebody was reluctant to take their medication. Maybe it was a, a mental health issue. Maybe it was a financial issue. But we can, when we work together like that, it's amazing what we could accomplish. One last question for you then. For somebody who maybe can't afford therapy, they can't see a therapy therapist because of access, what would you recommend that they do? What's the first step somebody could take if they are somebody who has experienced intergenerational trauma? Well, you know, the the primary thing I would say would be for sure to um, focus on the ways in which, um, you know, you can integrate wellness practices into your life that can actually help you with some of, you know, the biological components, especially of intergenerational trauma, right? There are ways in which, you know, you can get at the pieces of the mind by doing things like journaling, right? Some of these these uh, practices can actually be accessible to anybody who, you know, knows about them and is willing to practice them, right? Um, breath work is accessible to all of us who are alive, right? If you're living, then you're likely breathing um, in some capacity. And so if you have the the capacity to breathe and you have the power of the breath and what it can do for um, your mind, your body, and your spirit. So being intentional about, you know, doing these practices on a daily basis is going to be a a really important feature of your day-to-day life, which is why whenever I'm working with folks or or making the recommendations around um, anything that's trauma-centered, it, I usually try to emphasize to people that they need to establish a routine that it can't just be something that they do in a reactive uh, function, right? Uh, Something happens and so now you're taking a deep breath uh, because you need it, but more so that you're taking deep breaths for five minutes at the very minimum every single morning before anybody wakes up and your, your day starts and that you can start your day from a place of regulating your nervous system and that your nervous system can, you know, um, internalize what you're trying to do for it. And as we know now through neuroscience, you know, there are ways in which, you know, even the the actual organic brain can be transformed through neuroplasticity, through many of the mindfulness and meditation and, and breathwork practices that we engage in. And so if you have the power to actually transform your mind in that powerful way, then, you know, why not do it and, and help yourself even if you don't have the access at the moment to, to and I want everybody to follow you because you offer tons of free information online. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and your work? Oh, thank you. And um, so most of my work right now is situated in both Instagram and TikTok under the same uh, name, which is Dr. Mariel Bouquet. 
And, and I think that that's, those are the two places at the very moment where I, I share a lot of information and even sound bath meditations that are free and accessible to, to anybody who is hoping, you know, to engage in any of those practices on a more routine basis. Well, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Bouquet's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, consider whether you might be experiencing intergenerational trauma. Dr. Bouquet talks about the things that can happen if you've experienced intergenerational trauma. You might have symptoms that line up with PTSD, even if you weren't directly exposed to a traumatic experience. Your mind and your body might respond as if you were there. If you were raised by someone who experienced a traumatic ongoing experience, like they were raised in a home with a lot of violence or they lived in a place where they feared for their safety, you might be affected in several ways. Your genes might be altered due to your parents' chronic stress. They may have also raised you in a way that keeps your body in a state of heightened alert. For example, maybe they were overprotective or maybe they were neglectful due to their own history of trauma. That's not to say, though, that everyone who goes through a traumatic experience passes it on to the next generation. After all, that's why we're talking about this subject right now, so that people who have experienced intergenerational trauma can stop the cycle. But understanding your family's history of trauma might help you make a little more sense of some of the things that you experience. Number two, get professional help if you can. I agree with Dr. Bouquet's suggestion. If you can get professional help, do it. Not everyone has access to it, though, for one reason or another. Professional treatment might involve helping you identify symptoms and identifying unhealthy coping skills that you've adopted. Many of them you might not even be aware of. It can also help you work through emotional pain. It can teach you strategies to calm your brain and your body and teach you new ways to solve problems. And in some cases, therapy might involve doing some repair work in the family, but not always. And number three, learn and practice relaxation strategies. Dr. Bouquet also talked about doing body work. She suggested things like yoga, breath work, and progressive muscle relaxation. You can join a trauma-informed yoga class if you have one near you. You could also join one online, or you can access free online videos. A quick search will pull up lots of videos for you. The same can be said for breath work. There are lots of books, articles, and videos that can teach breathing exercises that calm your body's physiological response to stress. There are also videos and audio apps that teach guided meditation and progressive muscle relaxation. The reason these things are so important is that there's such a physical consequence to trauma. If your body is in a heightened state of alert for a prolonged period of time, you might develop health issues. Or if you're chronically stressed, your body and your brain might struggle to function. Learning effective relaxation strategies can stop the flood of stress hormones that get released into your system and help you gain some much-needed relief. So those are three of Dr. Bouquet's suggestions that I highly recommend. Consider whether you might be experiencing intergenerational trauma, get professional help if you can, and learn and practice relaxation strategies. To learn more about Dr. Bouquet's work, make sure to follow her on social media. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.